Well, my advice is to do your part, to do the best you can for the continuation of the preservation of our name and culture and heritage. Just just don't let it die and and, and, and be extinguished. Don't let it let that happen. G'day and shalom alochon. My name is Ninos Kenna, and this week in episode 158, we have a chat with someone I could only describe as an intergenerational legend of the Assyrian community in Australia. Arriving in Sydney in the early 60s, our guest has tirelessly worked for the betterment and welfare of the Assyrian community in Australia. Whether it be teaching our mother tongue, which he has done since 1974, whether it be running an Assyrian language radio program, which he has been involved in since 1976, or translating important government announcements in Assyrian, including during the recent COVID-19 lockdowns and pandemic. This is something he is still involved with to this day. And this was on top of his accounting day job. Now in his mid-80s, Philemon Darmo still translates to this day, gaining wider recognition when the Sydney Morning Herald, which is Sydney's major broadsheet newspaper, interviewed him earlier this year. Philemon tells us how he really enjoys what he does, enjoyment and a sense of value being what really drives him. There's a message for everyone in this episode. Older listeners can appreciate the importance of maintaining an active mind, Volunteers can appreciate the importance of purpose and passionate Assyrians can appreciate the importance of language. Now, on the topic of language, Apple and Android both support Assyrian keyboards. Do yourself a favor and install it today. Go and text your mum and ask her what she's cooking tonight. Now, if you don't feel like Bomiruza, text your friend for pizza in Assyrian. You know, it's, it's this casual use of our language on our phones that really excited Pilimun despite all his years of of working for the community, and it instilled hope that our beautiful language will continue to survive. Enjoy a chat with Pilimon on a pleasant spring Sunday afternoon in his charming brick home, drinking tea to a soundtrack of birdsong, a cuckoo clock, and a Nipai airstrip. Enjoy. Philemon Dadamu, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Ninus. Philemon, I, I actually saw, I've known you for a very, very long time through our family's involvement in the Assyrian Australian Association. But I noticed an article about you in the Sydney Morning Herald quite recently about some of the work you've been doing uh, in the community. Uh, translation work. Yes. Yeah. How did you... Uh, come about in the radar of uh, and, and and just to explain um or could you explain some of the the translation work that you're you're doing well i've been um, actually i've been doing translation work ever since i got involved in running the uh, syrian radio program uh, on the sbs radio and this goes back to 1976 
Uh, I used to translate the um, national and the international news for the program. But at the same time, I used to translate all the information about the Australian way of life. So that's when my translation experiences started in 1976. This was working for the state broadcaster, was it? The state broadcaster, which is called SBS, Special Broadcasting Service. Service. Uh, When we started, uh, it wasn't called SBS Radio, it was called 2EA Radio. EA stood for Ethnic Australia. Okay. And you would basically broadcast the news? Well, we had... uh, Initially, we started with two half-hour programs per week, and then uh, later we, we, we got two hours a week. So the news I used to... I mean, everything on the program was in Assyrian, in the Assyrian language. Uh, but the news were um, uh, was prepared by the station staff themselves, and we had to only broadcast whatever the newsroom had prepared for us. So it was quite uh, scripted, and but you just had to translate. I, I just had to translate it into simple, uh, understandable Assyrian Syrian. language. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And that was back in the 70s, and since then you've been translating COVID messages. Well, then uh, in, in the 1990s and early 2000s, the state and the federal governments got interested a lot in this multiculturalism in Australia. So they wanted a lot of government information and government policies uh, translated into various languages. But initially, it was only uh, they were only interested in the major languages like the Italian language, the Greek language, Chinese, Arabic, and that's how uh, SBS radio started. They started with eight major languages, and they started uh, the SBS radio started in 1975. And as soon as it started, your uncle, your McKenna, was the president of the Assyrian Australian Association. And he wrote a letter to the government congratulating the government for starting this service, but telling them that we too had a language and we, we wanted a slot in our language. That SBS, well, in those days it was 2EA. 2EA should not be just for the major languages. It should also cater for small languages, for small communities like ours. And within a year, we got a slot. We got a slot on 2EA radio. It was a one-hour slot each week? No, initially it was two, one, two half hours. Okay. Because they didn't even have a proper studios in those days. They used to pre-record uh, the programs at private studios and broadcast them on, a, on another radio station. And it took a few years until they actually established their own studios 
and their own structure. They enacted a special, I call the Special Broadcasting Service Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And today they have these really fancy studios near the city. Oh, yeah. Today, I mean, in those days it was only radio. Yeah. But then they branched out into TV as well. Mm. Nowadays it's there all over the place. Mm, that's great. And is that how New South Wales Health approached you regarding translations? No, um, and then what happened, the translation services in Australia got promoted by the setting up of an organization called NATI, National Accreditation, uh, I can't remember the exact, NATI. To accredit, translate, to accredit translators and interpreters. And again, a couple of Assyrians were, inter- were, were very enthusiastic about it. They approached Nati and said, what about accrediting people in the Assyrian language? And, and that happened. Mm. And I applied for accreditation and I got it. This was 2006, 2007. Okay. That's quite recent, actually. Yeah, I started translating a lot of stuff. But then when this COVID-19 thing blew up, the Department of Health wanted all communities, especially within the last six or seven months, when the the virus spread in the southwest suburbs of Sydney. Which is where most Assyrians live. Well, in, in, in the suburb of Fairfield, in the what they call uh, local government area, LGA. Mm-hmm. More, most Assyrians live in Fairfield, Liverpool area. That's right. So, what, so I've been getting a lot of requests for translate all sorts of information in, into the Assyrian, and I try to do it to the best of my ability. Now, to be to be a uh, an efficient and competent translator, you have to have the tools. You have to have the the, the most important tools for a translator are dictionaries and also uh, a computer and, and access to the internet. In the case of our language, we also have to have uh, a, a Syria keyboard on our computers because Syrian language is a right-to-left direction language. So I, I was fortunate enough in being able to organize all these things and I had already accumulated a large number of dictionaries. I have over 30 dictionaries. Dictionaries, uh, English, Assyrian, uh, Assyrian, English, Arabic, Assyrian, Assyrian, Arabic, uh, Arabic, Arabic, because I'm, I'm multilingual. Mm-hmm. I'm fluent in Assyrian, English, and Arabic as well. So I also use the Arabic dictionaries a lot. I I also use Google Translate in Arabic a great deal in my translation. Mm. It gives me, when I get stuck in uh, w- with a phrase or a word, I go into Google Arabic Translate, and more often than not, that gives me an idea of what I should say in in our language, yeah. in the Assyrian language. What are your thoughts of how the Assyrian language has manifested in on the internet? especially smartphones with the advent of uh, Android and Apple offering Assyrian as a, as a, as a keyboard. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great advancement. It's, it's a great step because we, we, we've, especially 
we who've migrated to Australia or to Europe or to America, we thought with our migration the language will gradually die. But then came along the internet and came along social media and came along all the various fonts and all sorts of languages and all sorts of keyboards. And nowadays, you can actually Google uh, material using Assyrian script. Yes, I've done that before. You've done, yeah. Yeah, Wikipedia has has an Assyrian uh, section in it. Exactly, yeah. So that has helped to promote and to preserve our language for a few more decades, I hope, a few more years. What do you think it it would take for the Assyrian language to survive longer than that? Well, it'll take it'll take things like um, the Assyrian podcast. The people involved in the Assyrian podcast. Most of you are young people, are young generation. Uh, you you you're not only interested in the Assyrian heritage and Assyrian history and Assyrian culture, but you're also interested in the Assyrian language. I mean, I noticed you yourself, Ninus, you have uh, an Assyrian keyboard on your mobile. I texted you. I, you, I SMSed you in Assyrian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, if uh, more and more young people like you get involved in that, and more and more people like you have, have uh, Assyrian or let's call it Syria keyboards mm. on their computers, on their mobiles on their uh, whatever devices they use and also if you if you go into the internet nowadays and and google how do i learn the assyrian language there are dozens of ways people can learn so that gives me a lot of hope that our language will survive for a longer time is it about making the language functional in in the sense that casual so for example i sent you an SMS in Assyrian. I want to message my friend and say if he wants to meet up for a coffee. And just very basic casual conversations like that on, on the, the well, phone. Well, that's, I mean, one of the, the basic use of the language is, is to enable casual contact between people. But I was impressed with your SMS messages. You used zaw'i, zaw'i are the dots over and above the letter, which, which are our vowels in our language, uh, dots over, uh, over and below, above and below the letter, mm-hmm. are our vowels. I, I don't know how to do that. Was, <laughs> after this session with you, I'll show you. I'll, I'll ask you to show me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you. No problem at all. Yeah. No problem at all. That's great. I was going to ask though. When I learned Assyrian, I learned it at a Syrian school. Yeah. Which. You were one of the founders of. Well, I was I was the founding teacher about this time in 1974. About this time, it was in middle of November 1974. What was some of the background behind uh, starting the Assyrian? Well, this was if you study, if you read the Constitution of the Assyrian Australian Association, one of the points in the Constitution is to preserve Assyrian language and culture. So. At the time, I was a member of the committee of the Assyrian Australian Association, and I was asked to start the, the school. Well, I said, you get me the desks and the chairs. And in those days, we had just bought 
the property that the, the association owns in, on Smithfield Road. With a current, uh, with a Ninra club. With the Ninra club is it's nowadays it's uh, Eden venues. Eden venues, yeah. Uh, we had uh, a wooden shed there, and they organised a couple of rooms and put desks and chairs. And I remember our first class was held under the palm tree on the property. The tree is still there now, by the way. Is it where the car park is? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The tree is still there. We had our first, I had 15 students, 14, 15 students. Wow. So I was the only teacher, and because I was the only teacher, I was also the principal. As the news spread through the community, more and more parents uh, brought uh, brought their children to enroll in the classes. So I needed more teachers. And one of the first teachers was Sophia Kanna. She was one of the first teachers who came to help me. And Arsene Shalal was another teacher. And, and then gradually, more and more parents brought their children. Then the place was too small. We just couldn't, couldn't, it wasn't hygienic. It was, it was too, too small. So I, I approached Fairfield Public School principal, the late Mr. Eastwood, whose house happened to be in the same street where our house was in Fairfield, Nelson Street. And I said, could we, could we borrow a few classrooms? No worries, of course, no, no problems. So we got five, five or six classrooms, and over the years, it built up to about a dozen classrooms. And then that got too big, and we moved into another school, and that's how the school has built up. Yeah, that's fantastic. Could you please give some of our listeners a, a context behind starting the Assyrian Australian Association? Well, again, uh, I mean, I, I arrived at, in Australia in November 1964. From where? From Iraq. Okay. From Iraq. Actually, from Germany, because I, uh, I left Iraq in, at the end of 1963, and I went to Germany. Uh, I spent a year in Germany, tried to learn the language and work and live in Germany. And then... As they say in our language, uh, somehow I got into, introduced to an Australian dentist who brought me some forms from the Australian embassy. I completed the forms and they accepted me. So I came in 19... Who was that dentist? Do you remember? He was an Australian. Okay. An Australian dentist. I can't remember his name. Sure. Yeah. So when I came in November 1964, I actually stayed with your uncle, your two McKenna and his wife, Sopia. I stayed there for about a week. Was this in Paddington? In Paddington, yes. They had, they had a house in Paddington. Not a house. What was it called? Terrace. 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 That's right. Yeah. yeah. And in those days, there were about... Less than half a dozen families, Assyrian families. There were another 20-odd single people like myself. And we used to get together, get together, especially people like your uncle, Yotu Makenna, uh, having come from Kirkuk. He was very active in the Assyrian community in Kirkuk. And he said, we better start something here. And that's how it happened. Were you from Kirkuk as well? 
I am. Well, actually, I was born in a village in northern Iraq. Which village? Village of Harir. Harir. Hariri. Harir. Hariri. Which is north of north west of Erbil, city of Erbil. Mm-hmm. Where I finished. Uh, was that your ancestral village, or was that where your? Because a lot of people. Uh, ran from Hakkari in yeah. the First World War, and they settled in a in a, another village in, in villages, Iraq. Yeah. So was that your ancestral village, or, or did you have a, an no, ancestral no. village in Hakkari? No, no. My my parents were born in Hakkari. My parents were actually born in Hakkari, and they came to Iraq in the Exodus in 1918. The Raqqa. Initially, they settled in. In northern Iraq area of Mosul and that area, Semele, Mosul, Duk. And then a group of people from the region of Shemizdin in, uh, in, in Hakkari. They Is that where your parents were from as that's well? That's where my parents were from the region of Hakkari. Mm. Uh, they decided. Same as my family. Your family yeah. as well, yes. So they're a group of families decided to live uh, in, in the north of Erbil, in Hariri, Batasi, uh, Diana, th- those villages. And my parents settled in 1926-27. They settled in Hariri with the Matron Mario Subhanishu's family. They settled in that area. And I was born in 1938. I finished my primary school in Hariri and Batasi. Batasi is another village about 50 minutes an hour walk from Hariri to the west of Hariri. So when I finished my primary school there, um, I had to move to Kirkuk to do my middle uh, intermediate school. Is that like high school? Well, in Iraq, they they have intermediate school and high school. Okay. Uh, year, year seven, eight, and nine. Year seven and eight, nine. They call them mutawassita in Arabic, which is intermediate, which means intermediate. And then after that, it's high school, and then from high school you go to university. university. Yeah, yeah. That's good. So you went to your intermediate school in Kirkuk, and and you completed your schooling in Kirkuk. Well, I, I enrolled in an in a intermediate school in Kirkuk in 1953, 51, I'm sorry, 51. I finished year, year one intermediate, and I finished year two intermediate. And then the Iraqi company... Which Is this the IPC? The or? IPC, Iraqi, Iraqi Petroleum Company, Iraq Petroleum Company. They set up a training center called Industrial Training Center. My my people said, why don't you apply for the training center? They took 60 students every year, 60 students. I mean, five, 600 people applied and they only selected 50 students. And I was fortunate to be one of those 50 students. Was it? Uh, selected by aptitude test aptitude and also uh, who, who who you knew wasta wasta exactly <laughs> but in, in my case i didn't have any wasta so it must have been aptitude yes yeah so i started there so i left my intermediate school 
متوسطة الغربية in September 1953 and I started Industrial Training Center in 1953 five year apprenticeship so I spent five years in the, uh, in the Industrial Training Center after a year and a half they wanted us to decide what you want to specialize in engineering, electrical engineering mechanical engineering or commerce, accountancy and I selected account, commerce, accountancy so then, then I specialized in accountancy bookkeeping, accountancy and I finished it in 1958 then I had to go into the army to do my military service but because I was a graduate of an industrial training center the Iraqi government accepted graduates of the IPC Industrial Training Center as graduates of high school. So I, I went into the officer's college. I, I wasn't an ordinary soldier, mm. normal soldier. Okay. Then while I was there, uh, somehow the IPC decided to send me to the UK, to the United Kingdom. That's interesting. To they wouldn't do that to anybody. Well, they select. I mean, they, they selected three or four people a year, and I was one of those that was selected mm. to go and study accountancy because the plan was that eventually Iraqis should replace all the non-Iraqi uh, professionals in, in the old company. So I was one of those selected. So I went to London, uh, enrolled in a College of Commerce, which is the equivalent of TAFE here, mm -hmm. Balam and Tooting College of Commerce. I spent two years and three months there studying accountancy, uh, and I sat for the exams of uh, an accountancy uh, organization called Cost and Works Accountants. And I passed their exams. So a year later, they accepted me as a member of uh, Cost and Works. Now this is called Management Accountants. Fantastic. So I was there for two years and three months. And I returned to Iraq at the end of 1963. But having tasted the life in, in the Western civilization, Western world, I made up my mind that Iraq is no longer the place for me. And in those years, it was the years of coup d'etat, inqilab, inqilabat. I mean, in 1958, they massacred the royal family and declared the republic. And then if you, uh, in 1962, 63, those who uh, overthrew the kingdom, the, the Iraqi kingdom, they fought each other and one killed each other and and that's how Iraq has been ever since then and there has been stability in, in Iraq so I decided this is not the place for me so I went to Germany towards the end of 1963 and I enrolled in a German language college and within eight months I was fluent in German language on the topic of the German language college. <laughs> right on time. Right on time. <laughs> Your cuckoo clock went yeah. off. But then I, I met 
some people. Oh, but at, at that time, I heard that your uncle, your Kenna, and his family had moved to Australia. So I, I can't got in touch with them. And they said, it's beautiful. Australia is beautiful. So with the help of some uh, an Australian dentist, he got me some forms. And I filled them in, and then when I went. But you had other people talk to you about other countries, right? I mean, you you knew people, you knew Assyrians in the United States, or in no, the no, Kingdom? nobody encouraged me to. I wanted to go to England actually, mm. but they wouldn't give me a visa. Okay. To go to England, but America, there was no talk of going to America. After I filled in the forms, I was called for an interview at the Australian Embassy in Bonn, uh, because in those days there were Eastern Germany. Germany and Western Germany. That's right. And I was told by the Australian Embassy officials that the, 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 the normal, the general policy was to only accept people from Europe. But occasionally they made exceptions. Because we had a white Australia policy back then. Exactly. In those days, the white Australia policy was was very active, very uh, alive and well. But you don't look dark at all. No, no. But <laughs> may, maybe that's one of the reasons why yeah. they made an exception for me. Uh, so in November 1964, I arrived in Australia. And that's how I became involved with the early settlers and we established the Assyrian Australian Association. That's great. That's fantastic. And then the school, and in, in that time, you've been very active in the community. Well, I, I, was, I was very active, yeah, because I was. Before I left Kirkuk to go to Germany, I was. I tried to become involved in the Assyrian community in Kirkuk, but I was, I was on the young side in, in my early teens, late teens, early 20s. But I learned, I learned a few lessons from them. And I, that's where I got this feeling of supporting our community. What were those lessons? Well, to become, to become involved in preserving the culture, to preserve, preserving the language. And preserving the culture is such a wide subject. It involves so many things. It actually includes preservation of the language. So I, I had already got that thing injected into me, that, that feeling, that love of uh, the Assyrian community, the Assyrian entity. Would you translate it as Umtenayuta? You can call it Umtenayuta, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were there any other lessons you gained? In Kirkuk, when when you were involved with the Assyrian well, community, well, I was uh, I, I was I was heavily involved in the Assyrian community, but also in the Assyrian church. I mean, every evening I would go to church to the we used to call them slaughtered Ramsha, mm -hmm. the evening prayers, which lasted about half an hour, forty-five minutes. So every evening I used to walk. I mean, very few people had cars in those days, very few. Bus services were uh, were not that spread all around. So I used to walk up and down. It took me about probably half an hour walk to get to the church and come back and get back home. Mm, mm, fantastic. In Australia... So you've basically been involved in the Assyrian community from the get-go, from, from your arrival from in Australia yes, yeah. until today. Well, I'm, I'm a bit retired nowadays. <laughs> not, not based on that article that I read. 
Certainly I mean, my, not my main involvement, my main involvement is in translation nowadays, so, which is the one thing that keeps me sane, actually, <laughs> and, and keeps me occupied and keeps me happy. It's important to stay occupied. At my age, you have to have you have to be involved in something. I can't be involved a lot in um, physical activities a great deal, or I can't be involved in community activities where I would go to a meeting every night or or two or three times a week. I can't do that nowadays. But translation work keeps me occupied. That's great. So you started. I'm just going back to your work with the, the AAA in Australia. So you had basically been one of the founding teachers of the Assyrian school. The founding teacher. The founding teacher of the Assyrian school. Yeah. Uh, was there any other involvement? We, you were an officer of, oh, of the that, association. Oh, that's, that's 1974. Mm-hmm. Then, two years later, came the... The radio. The radio. Too, and that was a full-time job. Okay. That was because to translate five, I mean, when we had two half-hour programs a week and the news were only broadcast in the the first half-hour, to translate five minutes of news took me maybe close to two hours Mm. because it's not easy. You You have to do so much research. You have... That's it's, that's where, where I, I referred to a translator has to have the right tools, right equipment. The dictionary, the computer. The dictionary, the computer. And what... And a bit of imagination? And, and enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Because uh, sometimes be, the translation you, isn't, isn't black and white. Well, that's what the challenge, the challenge is, is what keeps me going. I mean, I come across uh, a term or a phrase. It's very challenging. I'll give you an example. Recently, in this COVID-19 flow of information, they have been using a lot of terms like LGAs of concern. Mm -hmm. LGAs of concern. Now, as a translator... To translate LGAs of concern <laughs> in Assyrian, it's challenging in Assyrian, because the context is removed. It's exactly. So the first thing you do is we don't have acronyms in Assyrian. I mean LGA. You have to translate it as local government areas. So you have to translate instead of one word LGA, you have to translate it into local government areas. Then of concern. Now you can you can one of the dangers or bad things about translation is when you word for word translation. And if you translate the word of concern literally word for word, it wouldn't make a sense. It wouldn't make sense at all. So then I said well, what what you end up translating is what you would want to tell your listeners in Assyrian what meaning you want to convey to your readers in the Assyrian language. So what does LGS of concern mean? It means local government of local government areas where there is fear of spreading the virus more quickly. Something something like that. Mm-hmm. 
and you have to come up uh, you have to translate something like that in Assyrian so although LG, LGA is of concern in English it's only three words LGA of concern but when I translate it into Assyrian I end up with 12 14 words <laughs> how did you translate it like what what well, what that, came up in the Syrian yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the whole idea. The, 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 the essence of translation is you don't translate word for word. You translate the idea. Yes. You, you translate the meaning, the intended meaning. So the word of concern means there is fear, there is a worry, there, there, there is a fear that in this local government area, COVID-19 will be spreading more quickly or more widely. Could I ask what you ended up using for the word LGAs of concern? Well, that's it. Local government areas where there is fear of spreading of COVID-19. Uh, as in, in, in Assyrian? In Assyrian. Yeah, well, what did you say in Assyrian? Uh, Pinyati, I mean, it, it might be common language. Sure. Pinyati, that's areas. Yeah. Shultana means government. Government. Uh, local is coronavirus. Mm. That's it. A lot of words. <laughs> yeah, but I, I hope the people got that, it. I hope that that conveys the meaning, what it means. So that's the challenges that translator faces all the time. Mm. You you must. Word for word translation may work may work in five percent of the time, but ninety five percent of the time it doesn't it doesn't work. Can I ask for your opinion on our script and how the script has appeared on on Windows on com, on the computer? Do you have any reservations about it? Well, but we we're progressing. We're doing well. Initially, when Microsoft Windows wanted to place our script on in Microsoft Windows. They consulted some people in America, uh, Assyrians and uh, Syriacs, mm. and they came to a conclusion that the, the script that they would, that would be the, the Unicode script is the Strangili codes, because that is understood by the Western Assyrians. But a particular type of Israngili. It's, it's a particular font of Israngili that's the default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're trying to improve it a lot. Mm. But what a lot of uh, agencies I work for, what they do, they actually upload uh, the PDF version of my translation onto the web, into the internet. And you'll type it in, in an Eastern I, I type that in Eastern uh, fonts, and I've got three or four which are very good. They're very easily readable, and they upload the PDF version, and that solves the problem. But I believe our people in America are trying to improve this situation more, more as, as we go along. Because I receive uh, feedback from people, oh, well, when I send a text message in Assyrian, yeah. it's in Israngeli. Yeah. And particularly, it's in more of a running writing type of font of Israngeli. Yeah. It's not a block font. And it's a little bit hard for people to read. And they say, oh, how do you read this? And I said, well, I just learned. And I just figured it out. You have to learn, exactly. Yeah. 
the same way as you have learned, as I have learned, people have to learn. And people have to read a lot. But I have to be honest, and something really exciting that's happened in the community and with the recognition of Assyrian um, in Australia uh, as, as, a, as a language is billboards. I was driving on the freeway, yeah. and actually there's one at Sydney Airport, and it's a multilingual display about COVID information yeah. in all the different languages, Vietnamese, yeah. Chinese, Arabic. Assyrian was there as well. Yeah. There was a block in Assyrian, yeah. and it said push and beta, yeah. but uh, stay at home. But the font was in Istanguli, yeah. and it was so hard to read. Yeah. I didn't want to have an accident. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's one thing that we have to put pressure on the people who run the the web. Yeah. And people who run Microsoft or, or I don't know who, who runs all these Google, things. Google and Apple, and now yeah. you know the two administrators of, yeah. of our mobile phone systems. Well, people of influence like yourself and your pals, your friends in America, they should approach Google and Apple and. Fix the Unicode font. Exactly. Yeah, and do what exactly what we did here when, 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 when the Assyrian Australian Association wrote to the government, say, do you know there are other people living in this country other than Italians and Greeks and and, and Maltese and and Arabs? There are people called Assyrians. I know there are only about twenty thousand of us. But we still have a culture. And, and they listened. The government listened to us. I remember when we first wrote to the government, said, well, can you tell us something about the Assyrians? They didn't even know who the Assyrians are. It's still a challenge today. But I wrote a three-page letter. In, in a three-page letter, I condensed a brief history of the Assyrians and, and the, how, how our language has developed over thousands of years. They were surprised mm. that there is such a thing nowadays. Mm. I have one question about your years of service. People who get involved, it's sometimes it's at the cost of other things because you know the one input for involvement is time. Yeah. And so do you have any regrets about all your years of uh, service in the community? I, I, I don't. Uh, I don't, actually. There was a time, especially when I was involved in uh, the radio program. I mean, my involvement was on the radio program. I could also have been involved in the Assyrian Australian Association. I could, have, I could have been involved in a few other things. And apart from my nine-to-five job, that's on top of... Which was accounting. accounting. You're working as an accountant here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I earn my living as an accountant. Mm. Yeah. But somehow, because I enjoyed doing what I was doing, and, and thank God I was healthy, uh, I, I was healthy, and um, you know, somehow managed. Mm. Mm. And you've seen waves of migration, waves of Assyrian migration, beginning with your generation yeah. in the late 60s. And you saw a wave in the 80s and a post-Gulf uh, War wave. Yeah. And more recently, you've seen a, a recent wave of, of migration. Do you have any observations you'd like to make? Because you've basically been involved in the Assyrian community in Australia for you know at least 50 years. Well, it's regrettable to say that the late, the late arrivals do not have strong feelings that we, the early settlers, had about 
about our culture and about our language. They, they, they don't become involved, although I notice a few young people are becoming more involved. But these are challenges that in life that you have to, you have to accept and face. And, and I've also, uh, one, one of my philosophies in life, never be negative about life. You've, you've heard the half glass, uh, half empty and half full glass. Well, I always say my glass is half full. Mm. I try and look at it that way. Mm-mm. So optimistic. Be optimistic. Mm. Do you think it's the environment that they've come from, the recent arrivals? Yeah, yeah. Because they have suffered more, a lot more than we did. I mean, most of the early arrivals were, quite frankly, were economic migrants. We, yeah. I mean, I came here as an economic migrant. Uh, I wasn't oppressed, I wasn't imprisoned, but especially since 2003, I think things have gotten a lot worse, a lot worse. I mean, the people who have suffered under Daesh, uh, it's unimaginable, you know. Horrible. uh, They're horrible, horrible things. I mean, they, I, I, I liken their experiences to what my parents went through when they were escaping the, the Ottoman Empire and es- escaped by foot, by the way. They mm-hmm. escaped mm-hmm. by foot from Urmi from in Iran to Bakuba, to Bakuba in Iraq. It's a few hundred kilometers. It's a few hundred kilometers, all right, yes. Yeah. You've spent so many years uh, working for the Assyrian community. Do you, do you view it as such? Do you, work, do you view it as working for the community? The the important thing for me is, is what I'm doing useful or valuable to the community? And am I I doing it out of duty or am I doing it because I enjoy doing it? And um, most of the time it's the latter. Because I enjoy doing it, I do it. Mm, That's really important. So you're just driven to, you're, you're basically just doing what you like. I'm doing you don't what feel I like, like and service? it just so happens that what I'm doing, um, I'm at the same time being of some help or assistance to the community. Okay. And that's that's the question they asked me uh, when they interviewed me about my translation work. I said, I enjoy, I love doing what I'm doing. So I was asked, what your legacy, what, would, what, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I said, mm. I just want to be remembered as someone who try to help his community and at the same time preserve the language help preserve the language mm. that was our uh, that was the cuckoo clock again yeah <laughs> <laughs> I had another question about today volunteering I find that you know helping others and especially today I feel like we're so much more individualized today. You know, we have smartphones, we have all this technology, but I just have this view and it's a widely held view that it's also alienated a lot of us, you know, especially young people. They just, you know, they stay at home or they'll, you know, do, they'll conduct individualized things uh, driven by the phone. Um, Some researchers call it atomization. Uh, the atomization of society so the opportunity to be involved in communal or collective things is is diminished a lot in the last 20 years particularly do you have any advice on 
young people who might want to volunteer or what advice would you give to young people if they to inspire them to want to volunteer and help others well i would still advise people to volunteer to be of value to 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 contribute to the well-being of the com- of the Assyrian community and of the community in general but especially of the Assyrian community and the preservation of our culture and our language my advice would be to be all community oriented not to do it in your own little corner by pressing a few buttons get out get out out there in the community and and and, and contribute and socialize i mean i was i was very pleased i learned at the rabinimur simono scholarship function that the association had i met uh, a couple of young young guys who had set up uh, an assyrian university student association now that's great that oh, is... i want to shout one of them out barsin oshana that's him exactly <laughs> yeah now i want more young people who are studying at universities or at tafe or uh, institutes higher education to go and join that that organization and to see what they can contribute Yep. If I was to extend that, and I'm going to extend that into my last question uh, for our conversation this afternoon, if you have any advice, or if, if there's one message you'd like to give to the Assyrian community in general, not just for young people who might want to volunteer, what would that advice be, or what would your message be? Well, my advice is to do your part, to do the best you can for the continuation of the preservation of our name and culture and heritage. Just just don't let it die and, 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 and be extinguished. Don't let, it, let that happen. And all the technology at our disposals nowadays uh, its, its aim is to enable us to do that. And the few things you have shown me today, what you can do with your mobile, with with the Syria keyboard, amazing. I mean, there's so much that can be done to help the preservation of our culture. Because we, we're not living in, in the land where our forefathers lived. And it's unlikely that we will, I mean, my generation, we will go back. Maybe the future generations may go back. So we're living in a different environment. So to preserve our culture and our our language and and identity outside our cultural home is is a big challenge. And we must face that challenge. That's fantastic. Philemon Darmuth, thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure, Nils. And thanks for tuning in to the Assyrian Podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm really looking forward to bringing you more stories from down under Australia. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, please stay safe and take care.